Today, in our sermon, we're going to continue the series we've been going through in the book of Matthew. And we've been going chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew and looking at all the ways that Jesus surprises us. All the ways that Jesus takes our world and flips it upside down. And today, um, I thought that we'd start by just giving you a little disclaimer that today's sermon might flip your brain upside down a little bit. Um, we have a difficult passage. The reason we preach through a book is to force us to preach passages that if I was doing topical sermons, I would go, oh, let's skip that one. And so today is a hard passage. It's something that we have to wrestle with. And I think that Matthew gives it to us for a reason, and I hope we can learn from it. But I think it'll be a little tricky for us as well. So I guess I just ask your patience. If at some point I say something and you go, huh? There'll be time to talk about it, and we'll have a Q&A at the end, as we always do, for you to be able to ask your questions. Uh, have you ever tried to break a habit of uh, a language pattern, right? Uh, maybe you've had this experience where you got into the bad habit of using certain words you feel like you shouldn't use, and maybe you're in a place that instituted a swear jar, right? Have you ever seen these? Um, I know it most from a TV show called Luke Cage. There's a barbershop. And the barber says, we are not going to swear in here. And so every time someone in the barbershop says a curse word, they got to drop a dollar in the swear jar, right? Uh, I think some teachers do this in their classrooms and high schools to just say, hey, let's kind of clean this up. Uh, and so maybe there's words that you said. For some of us, uh, we have certain phrases that we use that are now considered culturally offensive that maybe they weren't when we were kids. And so we have certain words that we use, and we're trying really hard to stop using the word that way, right? And uh, so you've been trying to fix your dialogue. Maybe there's something you have that's just a little coarse, and suddenly you have a baby in your house or a toddler, and you go, oh, I don't want to talk that way anymore. And if you've ever been in that spot where you're trying to change your language patterns, you will know how really difficult that can be, right? Right? This idea of how hard it can be to change the words you use. Uh, we had a preacher where we went to church in Memphis. Uh, he never made a big deal about it. I've never heard him talk about it. But he stopped using pronouns for God. I think it was in an effort to make God feel closer to both men and women. He got to where he just stopped using the word he when he talked about men or talked about God. Because he wanted God to not be kind of either gender, just be God. And so, like the sentence, like, when we come to God, we can know that he himself is committed to us, that he would die for us. The way that Rodney would preach it is, when we come to God, we know that God, in God's self, is committed to us. God would die for us. He just very carefully, and when I realized it, every week that became my purpose in the sermon, to like catch him making a mistake, and he never, ever did. It was amazing to me. Um, I've tried to do it, and I can't do it. You know, I use lots of he's and his's because my brain just cannot make that change. If you've had any habit, whether it be a verbal one or smoking or chewing gum or kids sucking their thumbs, if you have these things that you do habitually, you know how hard it is to break yourself of something like that. You may believe with all your heart, I don't want to speak this way anymore, but then when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you kind of speak that way instinctually, right? And it's this division that we have sometimes between our beliefs and our behaviors. 
Sometimes we believe something very deeply, but that belief has not worked itself out into how we behave all the time. And so sometimes we do things that we really don't want to do, we don't mean to do, and it just kind of comes out and you're like, oh, that's the old way of thinking that I don't want to do anymore. I can't believe I did that. And we kick ourselves about it. Uh, today we have a passage that I think is a lot like that. And we're going to start um, with the belief part. Um, we're in Matthew or Matthew chapter 15. And this passage opens up with a concern about purity. So uh, the Pharisees are very concerned that Jesus' disciples are not properly washing their hands before they eat. This is not just a hygiene thing. There's not like some pharisaical mom there who's really fussed that they're not washing behind their ears. This is also like a religious thing, a spiritual thing. This idea that you need to make sure that you clean off anything ceremonially unclean from your hands. Uh, Jewish people have all these rules about these things that you're allowed to touch and, and, and eat and things that you're not supposed to touch and things you're not supposed to eat. And so ritual washing became very important to them because they wanted to make sure that if you had touched anything out and about in the world that was gross, spiritually speaking, you washed all the spirit germs off your hands before you dealt with your food. So you didn't take in anything gross or, or, or bad or not kosher. And so that is the core of this debate that Jesus is having with the Pharisees because Jesus' disciples, apparently being the ruffian fishermen that they are, do not follow the proper hand-washing protocol. It sounds like a weird thing to have a fight about, but this is first century Judaism. And so they're having this discussion, and Jesus is defending his disciples, saying, you know, you guys are being really hypocritical in judging them by washing their hands when there are more weighty matters of the law that you ignore or where you twist God's law to do evil things. And he finishes with this amazingly broad statement, one of these statements where Jesus gives us a principle that we want to say, can we have some more specifics? Can you give me some more case law about how that works? And he doesn't because he's Jesus, and he likes to speak sometimes in these more broad terms. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Peter said, explain that parable to us. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? This is one of the few times Jesus ever talks about poop, okay? If you're ever curious about this in the Bible, here it is, right? Whatever goes in is going to go right back out. That's not what makes someone unclean. Verse 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. We have this very interesting debate, uh, if you like theological debates, about what Jesus is exactly getting at here. It will not be for several years until Peter will have this vision uh, in the book of Acts of this sheet coming down out of heaven and God declaring all food clean, right? Jesus says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And Jesus says, we're not going to worry about the kosher rules anymore. And theologians debate if Jesus is getting at that already in his ministry or if that's inappropriate, if Jesus is only talking about hand washing. Um, I think Jesus is speaking very generally for a reason. I do think he is prepping the disciples for a day where this unclean, clean food thing 
is not going to be a concern any longer. Because he says very simply, what you eat doesn't make you unclean. It's how you speak and the way that you live that makes you unclean. And so he makes this sharp division. This is the belief that Jesus lays out at the beginning of Matthew 15. Don't go around pointing at people who don't have the religious practices that you have, that aren't following the clean, unclean codes that you follow, and pretend like they're bad people when you're going around speaking murderous, evil, nasty things, when you're filled with hate, when you have sexual immorality in your life, when you slander other people. If the fact that you don't eat bacon makes you better while you're still being a murderer, that's not, that's not morality. That's not what God ever intended when he gave you these rules. And that is the belief. And then the next passage, I think Matthew shows us how sometimes your beliefs don't always follow into your behaviors. Matthew 15, 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged, send her away. She keeps crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So um, this is, uh, hopefully your heart hurt a little bit when you read this passage. Like this is not an easy passage. Um, Matthew starts by trying to tell us who this woman is. And he uses two signifiers that if we are not fluent in the Hebrew Bible, we might miss. First of all, he says she is from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is always a bad place, okay? There are these two cities that are in the northern part. I think modern-day Damascus is nearby, somewhat nearby, modern-day Syria. And Tyre and Sidon are always terrible. The prophets, every time they do a prophecy about kingdoms that are going to fall, Tyre and Sidon are number one on the list, right? These guys are always bad. In fact, the only other time Jesus mentions Tyre and Sidon in the book of Matthew is this passage, where he says, you people are so evil, it will be worse for you than Tyre and Sidon. In other words, in Jesus' mind, Tyre and Sidon is the benchmark for wickedness, right? That is evil. People are bad. Yeah, those are real cities, absolutely. Uh, the ruins of them are still there. So Tyre and Sidon are these terrible places. Then Matthew says that she was a Canaanite woman. This is an archaic Hebrew Bible term. Canaanite is very imprecise, all right, like much more precise than we talk about the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, right? These are very specific people groups. Canaanite is your generic group for yuck in the Old Testament, right? These are the people that don't do the right stuff, that worship the wrong gods, that eat the wrong stuff. They are bad. In fact, by using the word Canaanite, it's almost like Matthew is saying to us, this woman is unclean. She doesn't live the right way. She doesn't practice the right things. She's not an Israelite. It's interesting that Mark, 
um, who's not the most sophisticated of the gospel writers, but he gives us this story. He calls her what you may know her as the Syrophoenician woman, right? And that is a far more PC term. Syrophoenician woman would describe the geography of where she's from, but it's a very, uh, it's a neutral term. It would be like the difference between saying, oh, that person's from Alabama and saying that person's a hick, right? Like these are very different meanings. And so Matthew is calling our attention. She is a Canaanite from this place that's evil instead of using a more generic sort of clean term like Seraphonician. This is particularly interesting because we think that Matthew had Mark. He chose to change the words to highlight how foreign this woman is. And so she comes to Jesus. She makes this request. And Jesus' response really bothers us, right? He just ignores her. Can you imagine walking down the street and a woman behind you is pleading for the life of her child? And you just ignore her. And then the disciples say, hey, can you help her? And it's not, we really want to help this woman and this child who's suffering. It's like, she's super annoying. Like, I am tired of hearing this. This is why the way I yell at my kids when I'm driving in the car. Stop making noise back there. I need some focus. And so Jesus does this thing and he says, I am not going to give the children's food and give it to some dogs. Now, I want to be really clear. Okay, this slide is to remind me to not become a heretic, okay? It is important for me to say out loud that I do believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. And that is most well articulated here in the 2 Corinthians passage. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in various theological traditions, this is really important. That Jesus is a blameless person who died as a sacrifice with no sin in his life. And I do believe that. But I also believe that Jesus made mistakes. Not sin, but mistakes. Uh, On a very mundane level, I think he stubbed his toe sometimes, right? He did not walk along and go, oh, my omniscient knowledge tells me there's a tree root right here and I will avoid it so not to hurt myself. I think that he did that. I am pretty sure that every once in a while he called James John and John James, right? Any of you that have kids know that eventually the names get mixed up in your head. And I think if we really believe that he's human, I think there were times that he made little mental slips like that. Like, hey, John, I don't know, James, whatever, whoever you are, please come here, right? Uh, I don't think that the divinity of Jesus so overrode the humanity that he was um, unable to do things That were mistakes, normal human mistakes. Not sinful mistakes, but mistakes. And I do wonder, and this passage makes me believe it, if sometimes he did a conversation and he went, you know, I really wish I'd done that a different way. We've all been there, right? You have a conversation. You didn't say anything you didn't mean, and you didn't go too far. You just, I could have done that better, right? When we come to this passage, um, I think it helps us to remember where Jesus is at. Jesus is exhausted. Um, In the chapter before, he feeds the 5,000, then he walks on the water. John the Baptist, his cousin and dear friend, has just died. And then this passage tells us, then he's fighting with the Pharisees, and then he escapes to Tyre and Sidon, and probably he does for a little bit of a mini vacation or a retreat. He is going to Tyre and Sidon to avoid having to deal with people. 
And you know how that is when you're like, tonight I am taking off, I'm not dealing with anything. And then you get a text from somebody who wants something from you. And you're like, oh, just leave me alone. Jesus has gone for retreat and he has this woman following him and he's frustrated and his disciples are fussing at him and he just looks at her and he just says the first thing that comes to his mind the way a first century Jewish man would talk about a Canaanite woman and he goes, it is not good for me to give children's food to the dogs. Now this is, um, it's not totally surprising that Jesus is not interacting with non-Christian, or non-Christian, with non-Jewish people. Um, throughout his ministry, Jesus very much focused on the Israelites, focused on the children of God. This is partially because of his beliefs about what the whole Hebrew Bible taught, that salvation needed to come from uh, the Jewish people. It is partially because Acts shows us that God had a very clear plan about how to include the Gentiles, and that was a step-by-step plan that is not, we're not to full Gentile inclusion yet, right? Um, so there's this process. So it's not surprising that Jesus would say, my ministry is not to you Gentile people. When he does deal with Gentile people, he uses different rules of engagement. I could go on much further, but in the Gospels we see this, that Jesus treats Gentiles slightly differently. But it is one thing to say he doesn't usually engage with them, and another to say, you're a dog. It's another thing to have a woman pegging for her child's life, and he says no. And the thing is, no matter how much we respect and love Jesus, this image should bug us a little bit. We've lived long enough as humanity to know that when you dehumanize people by calling them names, it doesn't usually go well. And so what in the world is going on? And it may feel like it lacks sort of impiety, but in the end, there is no denying the dynamic here. Jesus says, I am not going to heal your child. That would not be right. And this woman looks the son of God in the eyes and she says, yes, it is. And he goes, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, but he does what he, she asks. This is one, in my mind, of two arguments that Jesus ever loses in the Gospels. He's very clear. We'll get to that. It's very clear that he comes in and he says, I, this is not right for me to do. And she says, yes, it is. And he goes, all right, I've done it. That's weird. Okay, that should bother you. This is an example that should stick out in your mind and should just make you think for a second that this woman looked him in the eye and said, yes, it is. It is right. We deserve crumbs, if nothing else. And he goes, man, you've got faith like nobody else. This is amazing in that it shows us, I think, that even Jesus, when he was tired and frustrated, could say something that wasn't really in agreement with what he really believed. And in that moment, he goes, you know what? You're right. Because, see, here's what happens to us. Um, we get, uh, and, and this, this follows this great pattern, right, that's all throughout the Bible. This woman saying, yes, it is, Lord, holding on to Jesus' promises, defying Jesus to do what he said he would do, and not, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, this, I think, should be totally connected, right, to the passage before. Jesus just said, it is not your uncleanness, it is not what you eat that makes you unclean. And then his next 
passage is about telling someone that the dog is an unclean animal that eats scraps and eats gross stuff, right? Jewish people didn't keep dogs as pets because they would constantly be trapping in the door with unclean material. Any creature like a dog that would scavenge around and like eat dead stuff they found is clearly off limits in a kosher household. And so Jesus has this woman, he compares to this, this animal that eats dirty things. It's supposed to remind us of this passage before that said, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth. And what comes out of her mouth is trust and faith, even in the face of being told no. And Jesus seems to say, I think, that her words have sanctified her. She might be a Canaanite, but she is a Canaanite with great faith. She is like Habakkuk, who says, How long, Lord? When are you going to keep up your promises? When are you going to do the things that you promised? Like the psalmists, who say, I cry out day and night, and I wait for you to answer me. She is in that beautiful tradition of people that say, God, I believe your promises so much, I believe them more than you do. Because you haven't done what I want, but I believe that you will. And she holds on tenaciously. And in the end, she convinces Jesus to heal her child. I think it tells us a couple things. First of all, we have got to be humble in spirit. When, she, when he says, it's not right for me to do this, and she says, yes, it is, my back would have arched. Do you know who I am? You're going to tell me what's right, right? I would have got super defensive and super angry. And Jesus, in that moment, melts. He goes, oh, look at your faith. I've healed your child. We live in a world that constantly claims that we are being hypocrites. And if we're honest, they're right some of the time and they're not right some of the time, right? We live in a world, oh, the church is just full of hypocrites. How many times a day do you hear that? And what's amazing to me is in that sort of a challenge, in this place, Jesus goes, you're right. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to bless you. Do you ever get faced with a charge of hypocrisy and say, you know what? You're right. I really overstepped it there. My faith should not cause me to do that. I shouldn't talk that way. I shouldn't treat people that way. And do you ever look at a non-Christian and go, you have called me to a better faith than I was calling myself. Thank you. God bless you. We don't. We get angry. We get defensive. We fight. Like it's a us versus them thing. And so I think we can learn from Jesus here that when someone calls your bluff, that you're not living out the beliefs as well as you could, that you can say, I'm sorry, you're right. And bless them instead of arguing with them. I think the other thing it teaches us is that this woman is a hero for standing up for what's right. I know it sounds so sacrilegious, right? But she stands up to Jesus for what is right. There are some of us who will not stand up to anybody about anything. We have in the church, in a variety of places, people and institutions and programs and whatever that do bad stuff that they shouldn't do, that make mistakes, that go places they shouldn't go. Do we have the right to say, do we have the, the courage to say, that's not right? You are not living out your beliefs. That is not who we should be as a church. That's not who should we be, should be as Christians. Can we have the spirit of the Canaanite woman to say, no matter how you theologize this, I know what's right, and you should do what's right. 
And that ability to have the confidence to say that because we do, we look like a, we look like a politician caught in a PR scandal sometimes, right? The church does something that shouldn't be done. It's like, well, technically, if you look at it, we didn't do this and we didn't do this. And I mean, if you understood theology, you might understand. But, and we like sit here and make all these excuses for why the church sometimes does stuff that she shouldn't do. And to have the courage to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. A pagan Canaanite could tell you this isn't the way this is supposed to go down. And to have that courage to say, this is what is right. And I will fight for it. Like Jacob fighting the angel. I will not let go until I'm blessed. And that there's something beautiful about that when we see, when we see places where our beliefs and our behaviors don't match up. Um, it is not my hope to beat you up this morning, but it is to draw attention to this very real reality that you have a full theological construct in your head of the way you're supposed to be and that the way that you live every day often falls short of that. And it's okay to say, you know what? You're right. I should do that better. And to be humble and to accept it and to then try to be better. Because in the end, the world will not trust us to be the people Jesus asked us to be if we only talk about it and we don't do it. The integrity of following through, even for Jesus, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean, but what you speak. Here's a woman who eats unclean and is speaking clean. I guess I should honor her faith, right? Like he had to go through that. And it's a challenge for us to, can we live that sort of integritous life? or not. All right. Uh, if you're new to us at the feast, we always do a Q&A at the end of our sermons where you can ask questions about what we talked about today. Yes, Mr. Ray. Well, and I will be fair to say I really believe in reading the text this way, but there are some preachers who might not like <laughs> reading the text this way because it does go to a kind of dangerous place for some people. Um, so I, all that to say, thank you. And there are other ways that people look at this. There are people who will go to great verbal gymnastics to why little dog, uh, what Jesus says here is the little dogs. And Jesus is giving us images of like puppies and that he's being, you know, he's call, he's using a term of endearment. I, I don't believe that, but there are people that do. So I think that that's fair to say. Yes, Brita. Yeah, that's fine. Sometimes my images are evocative more than logical. But um, it was really at that point just to kind of say when you get caught in a moment where you're not behaving the way that you really want to, it is an incredible spiritual maturity to be able to just go, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Like, that's really hard. Um, it's, oh, dude, the worst is with your kids, right? Every once in a while you discipline them and you messed it up. You went too hard or they didn't actually do what you thought they did. Or you had someone narking them out who was not trustworthy, one of their siblings potentially, right? Like you have all of those issues and you realize you mess up and looking at a five-year-old and being like, listen, you were right. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. 
oh, it's so much easier just to get angrier and blusterier, right? And just be like, I am never wrong. I am king of the universe. You will do what I say, right? And so I just think that Jesus is an incredible example here where he has this disagreement. I'm not going to help you. Yes, you should. And he goes, we'll do it your way. Okay. And he honors her and blesses her for her defiance. Like, can I, when my kids are rightly defiant of me, can I bless it? I don't know. To me, that is an incredible lesson in maturity to like how to respond when you do something you don't want to do. Yes, Anne. Yeah. The irony for me is that one of the things I fuss at my kids about is just because you're angry doesn't mean you get to misbehave. But then I misbehave just because I'm angry. And so, um, I mean, I don't know I have a great how-to. I just think, I don't know, I think there's just humility. The humility that Jesus has and the fact that Jesus' sense of identity and ego is so wrapped up in the fact that the Father loves him that like he's like, you know, God still loves me even though I did, I'd had this conversation with this woman. And I think that's, I don't know, saturating your life with the confidence that I'm loved and that when I make a mistake, it's okay because I'm still loved, I think helps us. It sounds really esoteric and out there, but I think that, I think it's important. I think it's why worship is important. I think it's why prayer is important. To remind yourself of the reality every day. I'm a flawed person who is loved and saved by God. Then when I make a flaw, I'm less likely to get personally engaged in it. Right. Yeah, I think um, along those lines, we always talk about this. Uh, the Bible talks about David as a man after God's own heart. And then you look at all the murdering and sexual infidelity and all the terrible things he does. And you go, oh, that's weird. But part of it is, I think part of what you're saying there, Seth, is um, David was the kind of guy that when he found out he did things wrong, said, oh, man, I'm sorry. I repent. I want to be better. And then made steps towards being better. And I do think that God's work in us might not help us stop it at the moment, but it definitely does help us to do that real repentance of I'm going to turn around and be different. Right. I, I think ultimately the standard is what you think, you know, what you think God wants, God's desires for the, the you know, trying to seek the heart of God. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. There are times when people will call. Well, I mean, there's in this passage, Jesus has called out your disciples don't properly wash their hands. And he goes, oh, yeah, you're a bunch of hypocrites, right? Like, he immediately fights fire with fire. Like, there is a strong disagreement at the beginning. Um, what is interesting is that it doesn't happen here. And so I think the challenge for us is to have soft enough hearts that we can hear it when we deserve it, right? Now, we're going to hear it when we don't deserve it sometimes. And having enough moral fortitude to go, I know what God's will is, and it's not what you're saying, and I don't care. But yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. I think absolutely. Like I said, I think this is a huge maturity thing of having the discernment to, like you say, filter. When am I getting challenged by a Pharisee that is just teaching pomp and circumstance and not righteousness? And when am I hearing a Canaanite woman who's actually calling me to the heart of God? And that does take a ton of maturity. Right. So I think in these circumstances, all I would say is this. Um, this is where you've got to be really good at monitoring yourself. Am I in this argument because I want to be right 
or am I in this argument because someone's going to be harmed by this? Right? And that's really tricky. And sometimes you start in the better place and you end up in the worst place. Right? And there comes a point where it's like, is this argument going to go anywhere? Right? Like, is there going to be any value to this that you have to ask yourself as well? But yeah, I mean, I do think, I think there is something in this passage to be said about an incredible dynamic within religious communities to be insular. And when they see someone who looks like an other, they ignore their needs and they don't provide what they need because of that groupthink of us versus them. And I think, and again, I know I'm a little on a ledge here, I think even Jesus for a second here falls into it for just a minute. And then he goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That is not the way I want to go about things. Because, oh, so to me, this is a great argument for why we can trust the Gospels and their historicity. This is a thing that you strike from the record. In fact, it's a thing I believe Luke did strike from the record. Luke, who's writing more to Gentiles than is writing to these Canaanite dog type people, when he, assuming that I, I have the right construction that Luke had Mark with him when he wrote his gospel, I think Luke looked at the story and said, yep, we're going to skip that one. No, thank you. <laughs> and so um, I think Matthew includes it because he knows he has a lot of Jewish Christians that still have these hangups. And he wants the Syrophoenician woman to confront them in the same way she confronted Jesus. So that's why I think we have it. Does that make sense? I love that image that even in the middle of this conversation, she says, yes, it is. And, and God goes, Jesus, you should listen to her. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I, I, I totally get that. Yeah, that desire to ask God to give us wisdom as we deal with everyday stuff.